This Podcast Movement 2022 audio session is brought to you by Supporting Cast, the best way to sell and deliver exclusive podcasts. And special thanks to PM22 Virtual Ticket Presenting Sponsor, Amazon Music. Well, good morning and welcome to Dallas. I'm Robert Riggs. I'll tell you a little more about myself during the uh, presentation. I'm just curious, does anyone in the group already have a show on television? Everybody trying to get there? Is that, are you anybody close? All right, well, I'm going to talk about my experience and uh, my tips and mistakes I made along the way that will kind of help you. So by way of... <clears throat> Do you hear it? This thing was serial killer. Hold on. Let's go back. Can we go back? <clears throat> Can we go back? Is it back at the start? So, the first thing I'm going to show you is a trailer for the television show. In one minute, you've got to tell the viewers why they should watch the show. But what I want you to understand when you see this is that in the industry, there's a thing called a sizzle reel. And the people of the networks and channels that decide whether or not to commission a show, they want to see something like this. And you need to tell them in one, in one minute what the show is about and who the audience might be. So this is a model for it. The sizzle reels don't have to be this sophisticated helps if they are. Uh, we didn't have a sizzle reel. It, ours really came out of the podcast. But I can tell you, after doing one show and other networks approaching us, most are looking for a sizzle reel. So this is an example. Everybody thinks all murderers are the same. Well, that's not the case. Oh, this guy was a sexually sadistic serial killer. He was a natural predator. He was on the hunt all the time. McDuff became known as the broomstick killer. He's snatching, taking, abducting, grabbing women all over Texas. This was evil beyond anything any of us could comprehend. McDuff's the convicted murderer who in 1966 was sentenced to die in the Texas electric chair. penalty, something's wrong here. Who would ever imagine that anyone would ever release this man from prison? The corruption was so deep in the world system. Tell us how this monster got out of prison. Naively. So that was based on a story that I did three decades ago. I started a podcast in um, before the pandemic called True Crime Reporter, in which I literally got out my old reporter's notebooks and started looking up old sources and stories I had covered. This was one of the big stories that I had done. And so in one sense, my uh, venture into podcasting and then television like this started three decades ago on TV. So. Early in my career, I was a correspondent. I covered the White House. I covered Congress. Uh, it really schooled me in a, a, a deadline and steady production. 
and that's something that's really important to a podcast, certainly into producing a television show, because if you're the lead story or if you're the story at two minutes after or three minutes after, and you're there, you're not there. There's a black hole. You're not working there the next day. I mean, it's brutal. I've seen I've seen people get a pink slip right on the spot when they miss their slot because it throws everything off. Also, there's a lot of levity behind the scenes, and you'd be sitting waiting for to go live, and everybody's sitting in a broadcast booth away, and your crew's behind you, and uh, it would always be a moment to kind of break up the tension. Because I, I will tell you, early on in television, you know, you, you would hear, you wear an earpiece, and you hear them saying, you know, and now we go to Robert Riggs Live, but in a, early days, a little uh, voice might come on in your ear saying, you know, there's a million people watching and waiting for you to really screw up and make a fool of yourself. So it always kind of helped. And I had a, at this point, we had one of the producers, and he was always into Billy Crystal. If you know who Billy Crystal was, used to be big on Saturday Night Live. Absolutely fabulous. I've told him this before. I've done him again. He rules. Fabulous to me right now. These are the people. This. These, these are the people who make me look good. This man looks fabulous. Make you know, it's me better feel to good. look good than it is to feel good, and he looks marvelous to me right now. I tell you, marvelous. Absolutely. Step up here. Another frustrated motorist in Washington. What was traffic like today? It was horrible. It was. It doesn't really... matter because she looks marvelous to me right now. Oh, I absolutely. So, you might the broadcast booth is just cracking up, going crazy in there. Like you know, we're going live in two minutes, and who the hell is the blonde that has come up off the street? But it was kind of, it was kind of the way we kept our sanity. So, I had experience. I did everything. This is me at the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, where you, me after 9-11, a lot of first. Uh, I did a lot of coverage of the Pentagon and the military. I did three wars. Um, this is me in Iraq. Like I said, so I kept the names, but uh, you know, one guy perspective. Yeah, I knew this one guy. So the, the important thing out of this for you as a podcaster that I learned as a journalist is to listen. Listen, it's not about you. Listen and ask questions, open-ended questions, but don't try to butt in and show how smart you are, how much you know about, you know, here's some weapons system. Listen to what they have to say and try to listen, well, what did they not say? And you'll get, you'll get really moments that are compelling. So this is us in Iraq. We have a Humvee and all, but I used to call the television crew my 600-pound uh, pencil. You know, my colleagues in the print media would go around with their reporter's notebook and a pencil, but I had to lug all of this around. And you know, it was a big, big burden. This is what I liked about podcasting. It was simple. You could. It was more intimate. The subjects were not intimidated by a camera staring them in the face. Um, and it was easy to travel around. We're, we're interviewing a, a sheriff and the head of a cold case unit here. So when I started to do this, I wrote a business plan, but I did a lot of research in true crime about, well, what is it? What is appealing? Where is the audience? 
and I found a lot of academic studies and other studies that were just buried out there to find out, well, what, I, what do I want to hone in on? I even did a test in YouTube, and I put up stories from my war coverage, other kind of stories, and I put up stories from my, like, 10 years covering prisons and criminal justice and serial killers, and I said, oh, you know, I think all the bang-bang stuff from Iraq and other wars, that, that's got to do it. That'll be the big stuff. And my wife like, you're an idiot. No, it's going to be the crime. Well, the numbers came in, and I had single episodes up that were half a million views, and so that told us, okay, you need to do true crime. And I had a, a deep uh, reservoir of contacts and sources so more of the, you know, you can get a sense of the research we were doing. So I first launched the trailer that you need to get approved with Apple and everybody. It was a 17-episode season about this serial killer that we had done. Uh, I had started production uh, pretty early and was just putting it out there. I can't say enough about this hosting company because I'm coming into it, I really knew nothing about the tech side of the hosting. I knew certainly knew television and editing and everything. Didn't know anything. They were really helpful and spent a lot of time with me and I, they still host me. Uh, I like their technology. The two main guys, Todd Cochran and Mike Dell, are uh, military veterans, so we kind of connect in the same language because I went to a military school and uh, we just sort of speak the same language, but I really like how helpful they are. So the podcast was about this man, a, a serial killer that most people have never heard of, not even in Texas. And in the next slide, I, it's going to be a summation about him, but this is going to tell you why this was a compelling story. And all of these events were what we, for the podcast, started to build a story arc around, on, literally on a whiteboard, and sub-arcs to tell the story. So I'll give you a moment to read it, and you'll get a, get a sense of how bad this guy was. So you can see he was going through the revolving door of the Texas prison system. And what I, I ended up doing was discovering that the parole system was selling paroles and he had gotten out under a cloud of corruption along with a group of other inmates, including former death row inmates who had been released and secretly, nobody knew it. So he originally was known as the broomstick killer. That was his three random victims. But along the way, you know, you're wanting to arm yourself with all the information about these cases. So I actually ended up digging deeper than I did when I was doing my original reporting because I wanted to bring, you know, details and all. Now, where this story went back in the day, the arrow points to me, but the story ended up a huge scandal and that's a hearing on the floor of the Senate uh, about it, and the governor even came, and it just blew up. For a long time, I was all alone. Nobody was picking up the story. So that's me, and that is the chairman of the Senate Justice Committee who also ran in terms of investigations in the legislature with what I was doing. And so we actually reunite in the TV show 
and come back together to talk about you know what happened. Uh, it, it took me into every maximum security prison in the state of Texas, and along the way you're learning not only how it works and inmates think, but other stories. I was doing many other stories. This is me at a guard tower at what was then death row in Texas. So we started off, these were the two principal interviews starting off, two sheriffs. And I want to emphasize here is that when you start off your podcast or whatever you're doing, be sure that you're getting your guest to sign a personal appearance release. It's crucial and critical to protect you from lawsuits. They understand what they, they're done. They understand what you're going to be doing with it. And how it helped us on this, one of the sheriffs who had a key story, the one in the kind of Serapi black hat, um, he had said to me when he did this interview, he said, this is the last time in my life I am ever going to talk about Kenneth McDuff. I am done. I'm emptying it out. I never want to hear the name. The man was a nightmare in my life. And what I didn't realize, he really meant it. So when we get a TV show and I go back to him, he's like, no, I told you, I'm not, I'm not doing it. Fortunately, I had the release. I had, a, I had a materials release for his picture that he'd signed off. And now I could use it in the TV show. There were some moments we needed it. So you will want to get a personal appearance release, a materials release for anything, pictures, crime scene pictures, and uh, for television, you got to get a location release. You, you, they have to sign off and say, yeah, you had my permission to shoot in my office or wherever, because it's a very litigious world. Now, fortunately, I had everything in the can before this happened. I had all of my interviews done, and then this rocked our world because I was bootstrapping the podcast. I had a consulting practice working with high-end personal injury lawyers, and I was you know, really taking money out of my income from that, doing the other, and suddenly this shut down Texas, every courthouse shut down, and I literally lost every client in a week because they couldn't practice law anymore. I, we even wondered if they, some of them were going to survive. Uh, but the other nice thing is it, it gave me a lot of time to produce the podcast, we all the interviews done, to produce it and also then start marketing and trying to get it out there. So one of the things I did and I suggest you do, you really need a, a strong social media presence and I put a lot out in my LinkedIn network about what I was doing because business people are in LinkedIn. On the other side of social, you know, you're trying to drive traffic in an audience, but in this side, it's business people. And I start, people started contacting me saying that I didn't know, they knew of me from television, but they wanted to know more. The other great thing that happened, uh, law enforcement that had known me or had friends, they started contacting me as well, like, hey, I'm retired, you should hear my story, I wanna come in and talk to you. So I think some podcasters end up with a problem of, I don't have enough content. We are over, we're literally this day, we're overwhelmed with content. So we launched the trailer that you need to get approved by Apple and everybody. That came out early. And then we started 
There's the description that we had to put out of it. And then we started releasing. And by the sixth episode, uh, people started contacting me from television, uh, interested in it. And I got a call from Max Montoya. Max was a new development director at a big production company. And he said, you know, I'm, I've, the, I've gotten the, we're I've discovered your podcast. I heard about it through LinkedIn. I've, I've got the president of the company to listen. And he wants to talk to you. And so he called me and he said, you know, I got to tell you, I, I never imagined a podcast would be worthy listening to. I don't know anything about them, but I'm, I'm all in. And what really told me his call was real was that he was asking me very, very detailed questions about each episode. He, he was a real listener and asking what was to come. So I started to work with them, and I've got Max, shot a quick interview with Max to give you an idea of what are these companies looking to. Now, what they do is they're, they're a big, they have a big international presence, but they're out there selling. They're out there pitching shows to all of the networks, and they're looking for people content creators to work with and this is the time for content creators uh, there's so many more channels there's so much interest in content that th this is the your time here's Matt senior executive at big media we are a original production studio and also an international distributor of all forms of unscripted productions um, when Robert first came to me with the podcast, um, it was you know very very easy to see what it could be in terms of a TV series. Robert had already done all of the interviews with all of the um, main characters of what would be the main characters of the TV show, um, and I think that Robert, in doing the podcast before the TV series, had already laid out um, most of the access that would be featured in the uh, TV series and had already, um, you know, figured out uh, the major story arcs that would uh, keep the TV series compelling. The thing that makes, um, you know, a story uh, compelling to um, a major network or TV channel um, is all of the things that, um, you know, make any drama series successful. It's stakes, it's uh, twists and turns, it's uh, likable characters. You know, I believe that good stories will always rise to the top, and the more access that, um, you know, you as the uh, podcast creator or as the main, um, you know, person sourcing the story, the more access that you have to the key characters involved in that story, the more details you're going to bring um, to surface level from that story, and uh, the more comprehensive, the more complicated, the more twist and turn type story you are then able to create uh, from that access. You know, subjects like travel, adventure, true crime um, are subjects and genres that will always be um, that will always be popular genres in terms of the general TV market. So one of the things we did, well I, I want to say then it won a Webby Award, the podcast did, so that even got more attention. They, I do a deal with them, and they start 
selling, and this is what a deck looks like. In every company that's out selling, they want a deck like this. So you work with them and you, because they want to convey the story arc. They have to do an episode synopsis. The, the networks all want to know, well, who are the characters? Do you really have access to them? So you can get an example here of how you're putting it together. Uh, and they go to meetings all the time. This is what they're taking. This is what the industry is accustomed to seeing. They always want to see this. Uh, the sizzle reel, sometimes yes, sometimes no, but they are, they are always going to want to see this. You can see the breakdown we've given them and down to the episodes. The names of the episodes, stuff like that, that changed, but they're just trying to get their heads wrapped around what is this? And you gotta realize this is somebody that knows at a network that really doesn't know any much about you or this subject, and they're short on attention, and they've, you, you, you gotta sell them. I mean, They've got to understand it and understand it quickly. So they eventually, they, they shopped it around, they shopped it overseas. There's all kinds of ways to do deals. Sometimes you find uh, partners that want to come in and share in the production cost. We ended up, they ended up getting a deal with Fox Nation Streaming. It was great timing. The network was just coming online. Uh, they wanted to go all in on true crime. So we did a $1.8 million budget for five episodes. Uh, that doesn't go into Robert's pocket. It's got to be, they have to see it on the screen. So we did a co-production agreement. And this is, if you get to this point, this is really crucial. I didn't get a lawyer. I should have gotten a lawyer. Uh, but you will want a lawyer that is an entertainment lawyer that works out of New York or Hollywood that really kind of understands how the industry works. The one mistake I made on this is that I didn't put in for a talent fee. I didn't realize I was going to be the talent and I ended up being the principal storyteller for all five episodes. Didn't get paid for it, but I was happy to have a TV show. But I got paid for being part of the production helping supervise the production, and then on the back end when it's delivered, you get a fee because you've brought the, the show to them. And the most important thing for you to think about is residuals for overseas in the international market. The international market is huge. That's where a lot, a lot of money and opportunity is. Not just true crime, but everything. And you want to make sure that you're getting some kind of percentage out of it. Uh, in this case, Fox paid everything. So there was no, that wasn't much leverage. You couldn't get a piece of the show itself domestically, but they didn't have a sales arm internationally. And the company I work with, that's what they do. And they've got offices in Munich and uh, Asia and all across the uh, globe. And so they did a deal that they would be the exclusive sales agent. Well, they've already sold it to Paramount for the United Kingdom, and it's being sold in other countries. And so I ended up getting a percentage of those deals. So you want to make sure you're, you're doing that, you're protecting yourself. The best way to do that is to have an, a good attorney. The other thing that I made sure of, since it's, it's my story, I understood the story, I was the podcaster, is that 
I do the interviews. When you, so I used to be a guest correspondent for Nightline when it was Ted Koppel. I did one segment for 60 Minutes. I did a, lots of series. And those were big undertakings, but I had never undertaken anything like this. It, there's a large cast that works. I probably, if you look at our credits, there's got to be 50 people that worked on this project. Uh, and things come down, they, want, they will actually name the specifications for the camera you're using, how many pixels, uh, how many cameras, you, all sorts of stuff like that. So it takes a big team. But the thing I made sure of is that I was the one sitting in the chair asking the questions because I knew the story. And the one thing I found out about Hollywood and the typical way they operate, they're not really good at asking questions. They'll come in with kind of written questions and they were shocked that I didn't have a list of questions. And I went, no, 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 we're gonna do this as journalism. It's gonna be open-ended questions. I'm going to listen and what they're not telling me. Or what are we leaving out? What's, what's the new thing we just heard and that's what we're going to get. By sitting in that chair and doing it, if you feel confident doing that, you then have a lot of control over the story arc of where the story is going. Now, I worked with a writer on this story that's assembling it because the, the narrative style they want is where everybody tells a story. Everybody that appears tells the story. It's a really hard way to do it. There's really, there's not a central narrator, although I play a little bit of that role of stitching things together. But that's what they like these days. They want to see the, the voice and the action unfold from everybody on there. So you need an experienced writer to work with you in assembling all of these parts. Uh, the key to the show, you get this part, is the showrunner. This is Seth Eisler. Seth was a show, the showrunner and executive producer. One of the things I said to the production company, look, I don't want anyone coming to this that's new to the game. I, I want highly experienced people that have done this, and I, I've got some new visions, and that's who you work with. The, the showrunner is the traffic cop. It's the most difficult job. He's the liaison with the network because the network will assign executive producer. The executive producer is looking at all of your rough cuts, sending back notes of suggestions of things to change. He's the guy that's handling it all in the field. He's in the field, executive producer managing all of the crews, managing all of the editing, every single thing going on. And the great thing about Seth is that he spent time on Broadway, he spent time in front of the camera, so he, he knows it from, from both ends, and it is an incredibly difficult job. So that's us out shooting, and, and one of my visions for it is that that tan 1985 Thunderbird is identical to the serial killers, and it was his abduction vehicle. And I when going into it, I said, I. I want to go find one, buy it, and we're going to make it a character in the show. So that when we're talking about some of the unseemly stuff, you're going to see the car uh, and driving. It's going to be on the same routes where he's abducting women, but it's going to be at night and there'll be a drone flying over it. And it gives this sort of eerie point of view over it. So we found this car, brought it down, and actually we're taking it back to locations where he did things and we're shooting it. And so 
there's a whole group of us that are behind everybody staying out of the way here. But we're taking it around to these locations, and then at night we're, it's being driven. Um, again, I'm kind of the, one of the principal storytellers, so at times it's driving. It's nothing looking into the camera like we would do on news. It's really driving along and talking about, hey, this is where he was driving. Uh, it's, it's like somebody's in the car. It's you, the viewer, that's in the car. But I'm not talking at you. It's like we're having a conversation. And so you see them here. They're loading the vehicle up with GoPros. I found myself back to the 600-pound pencil on a bigger scale because there were like three of these vehicles loaded with gear. We'd start off at about 6 in the morning and not finish till midnight. The crew would come in for 10 days, sweeps, shoot, go back, editing all kinds of processes start, and then they come back again. So here is a outtake of the drone. And we had a 4K camera on the drone. Uh, it'll give you a sense of how it works. You're gonna see it, it's doing a scene with me, and then we're gonna cut here to the actual show so you can see what that scene looked like on TV that's being shot here. The drone operator has an FAA license. He's done this. He's got insurance. We've got insurance in case this thing falls on somebody. So you want a bird's eye, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, get close to him. Go all around him. Okay. It took a minute to, yeah. <laughs> it's a wall bounce. He's going to walk. Okay. He's going to stop. And when he stops, I want you to kind of circle around him, nice and tight. And they're all looking at the video monitors to see what the camera is seeing. Okay. So you see in a moment what it looks like in the show. While Macduff languishes in prison, the nightmare for his victims' families continues. By 1998, seven years after Regina Moore, Brenda Thompson, and Colleen Reed were murdered, their bodies have still not been found. So did you notice how the color changed? It was more daylight, suddenly so goes that. So there's a whole crew back this crew is in Prague at a studio that does color correction, real involved technical process. So if you see a movie, you see a documentary, that's why that you'll see so many people in the credits at the end of all the stuff that's got to be done. So two months after it was released on Fox, we received a telly. We're all happy about that. and it. It brings you more people wanting to work with us for shows. This was the serial killer. If he'd been standing next to you in the line at the grocery store, he didn't look spooky. He's just an ordinary, and that's typical, ordinary, average guy. But I'm going to show you a series of things here because what I like to do as a podcaster and will pay off if you take it to television is I want to collect all of the stuff from the original case files. I want to collect 
everything in there because I really want to tell a detailed story, a story that's really rich and involved. And also we've got a website. And so the stuff is going on the website. So he was later caught in Kansas City and he had all these ligatures already prepared for abducting women there. And there, one woman had already disappeared. But again, they're in the television show. We use them in the website, but also for me describing, the, it helps me describe it, seeing it for the podcast of telling the story. And again, fingerprints. The other thing, this he was an enormous, enormous man, and he was known for having hands so big, they couldn't get handcuffs on him. They had to use leg irons on him. But what he did, he was so big, so massive, his preferred victim was petite, uh, typically four foot nine inches, and he would blitz attack them in public places, one-handed by the neck, off the ground, in the air, into the back seat of the car and gone with an accomplice in no time. And so we wanted to you know, convey all of that, and it helps us tell that story. So. These are crime scene photos. This is where one of his victims at Christmas was washing her new, her new car, and the neighbors hear a scream that's the last she's ever seen alive because he's come up behind her. Please come. Sud still on the car, purse left in the car, keys in the ignition, all details that in the police reports and all I'm able to use in the podcast that later come to television. So. Here's his cowboy hat with a blood stain of one of the victims on it. It was recovered from the car. That's the, his actual car that we found an identical version of. This is him uh, going to the Texas death house to be executed. He's finally was, he got, he got, he is the only man in Texas history to get three death sentences. Uh, so he got two different ones for his more recent crimes, and they were really looking at it as an insurance policy. They didn't want him to get out of den. It happens at a prison in downtown Huntsville called the Walls Unit, and this is the this prison goes back to like oh, 1870 something like that, and it looks like a prison. And this is where every inmate that comes into the system, this is where they start and get classified. And if they're paroled, they leave from here. And if they're executed, they leave from here in a pine box. So that's the death chamber uh, where he was executed, others. And by knowing people that were super, I, I never had a desire to witness. I could have witnessed executions as a reporter, never had a desire to it. I'm really not a proponent of the death penalty. It might sound odd of what we do, but you know, I'm. When you see what the Innocence Project has found, I'm like, eh. And, and the good thing that happened out of my scandal, the investigation I turned up, is that they put in a new law into effect that they would actually do life without parole for capital murder, which meant they never would get out. But if you listen to the podcast about the execution, it is very detailed, probably the most detailed thing you've ever seen around a podcast. You know, the job was just done. There was a great satisfaction on my part to see the laws changed. Actually, good came out of all of this suffering. McDuff was supposed to go back to Rosebud to be buried there, and when the word got out, there was an outcry in Rosebud. 
Megdoff was taken by inmates to a prison cemetery nearby. An anonymous marker on the grave that only has his death row number. There are psychopaths among us. You really need a way to keep them behind bars to protect the rest of us because they prey on the innocent when they're freed to kill. So the closing shot, that's the car, and that's all drone footage, and we did a lot of that all through it. Today, that's what our studio looks like. I've had a former U.S. attorney join me. We do it together. Uh, our differentiator is that we say that we take our listeners inside the crime scene tape where most true crime podcasters have never been and would never dare to go. Both of us have sat and looked at serial killers, mass killers, you name it. We've seen it, we've been all over the prisons. And so we kind of bring that to it. And we know, you know, we have homicide detectives and everybody come in. This is what we're doing now. We started something called Texas Ranger Case Files with our connections. So we launched some uh, episodes as tests. The Rangers, which are a very closed organization, they don't want publicity. Uh, they give credit to everybody else. They loved it. Uh, and so now, we're working, we're using the podcast basically and others as IP test, intellectual property test for TV shows is where we're going. And that's coming out as a podcast that'll be spinning into TV shows. Two TV shows are already out there. One thing I finally wanted to say was that I mentioned a website, that we had a website. If you're doing this and you're serious about it, you have to build a website. That's the only place you can own your audience. Uh, I grew up in East Texas and a big horse family went back to the 1920s and I saw a, a phenomenon called sharecroppers and this is where rich landowners rented out land to poor blacks and whites and I saw them taken advantage of because a bad crop comes in, they never, they ne never own anything, they never get any money. Uh, you do not want to be Mark Zuckerberg's sharecropper. You, know, you want to build it on your, so our our deal is you social and drive them, and we use the podcast, drive them to the website, and we try to get them to sign up by email for our true crime community. And email is the best thing you can have on people these days. That's where you can find us. Uh, questions? Yeah. Uh, hi, I'm going to be the person that's going to come bring the mic to you to answer or to get your question asked. Uh, hi, when it comes to uh, like, getting your foot in the door with, you know, these producers. Uh, like, my, my show is just, it's a, a fully scripted, uh, you know, actors uh, you know, fiction. And, you know, I, I'm just like a guy. You know, I, I don't have connections or credentials that I could, you know, leverage or levy to, you know, get my foot in the door that way. How would, how would you recommend maybe someone not getting laughed out the door when they're trying to set up a meeting or any kind of you know, conversation with these people? One of the shortcuts is to try to get an agent. Uh, they can try to shortcut it, or you try to find uh, online various production companies that are looking for things and try to get their attention. And the production companies, 
they have a pretty good sense of what the marketplace is and because uh, all the channels are different. They all want something different. I'm true crime, but I mean, there's so, there's life, you heard him say they're looking for lifestyle, um, travel, fashion, and something new, some, something new out there. So, but research, doing some research around agents, trying to find that. Um, I, I'll tell you one thing we did, I mean, this is a, a trick we did, is that when we were first coming out with the first episodes, I did a Facebook targeted marketing campaign to the two key zip codes in Hollywood. What was it, 7523, whatever that, you know, the TV show one. And I had agents start calling me that way, that it showed up in their feed. So that was kind of a trick. I, and I say use it, you know, it, it, it worked, for, it helped on us. And actually one of the, I may sign eventually with one of the people that contacted me from that two years ago. And you've got to be determined and, and don't give up. It's because it's a, it can be a long, hard process. I guess it was a year for them to sell the TV show. And then it was 10 months to produce it. And it, it suddenly really ate up our time. We put the podcast on hiatus. That was a mistake. And suddenly we had to come back and start rebuilding. We have time for one more question. Anyone? And I'm, I'm happy afterwards to visit with oh, you. Yes. Did you talk to a number of uh, production companies, or did you just sort of found that one to start with, or what was your process there? They found me. I was really fortunate, but they would not have found me if it hadn't been for LinkedIn. It was, yeah, okay. I, had a, I had a big profile on LinkedIn, and they found me through it. And because I started posting up, hey, we're going to be doing this show, we're doing this show. And I had a number, I had some podcast networks contact me as well. So it, it really is important to have a business network. I mean, those are the people that are signing checks, you know. I look at the other Instagram, TikTok, all those strictly to drive traffic to try to get people to subscribe. But LinkedIn is business. Very good. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. And if anyone has questions, you can meet Rob after. Round of applause, everyone, please. Thank you. Thank you.